0: This is Fields of the Future, an interview series by Bard Graduate Center. This season highlights the work of scholars, artists, and educators working with indigenous textiles and textile history of the southwestern United States and Mexico. In this episode, Jesse Mardane-Young speaks with Alejandro de Avila Blomberg about his career in anthropology, the history of cochineal, and the rich biodiversity of Oaxaca.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Mordine Young, a recent graduate from the Bard Graduate Center. I am a Brooklyn-based textile scholar, educator, and weaver. Today, I'm calling in from Oaxaca City. Oaxaca is the home of pueblos originarios, originary peoples. It is home to many people of different communities. It has the greatest cultural diversity in the Americas for an area of its size, which is an important thing to recognize. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Alejandro de Avila Blomberg today. Alejandro is a botanist, anthropologist, and the founding director of the Ethnobotanical Garden in Oaxaca City, Mexico. He also curates at the Oaxaca Textile Museum and plays an important role in preserving the culture by sharing its history through a variety of material culture, including textiles, plants, and art. He holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology and a physiological psychology degree from Tulane University, and he then received his master's in psychobiology. He also holds a doctorate in anthropology from UC Berkeley. He has established the first World Wildlife Fund headquarters in the country and continues to be involved in environmental and in cultural activism throughout the area. His interest in plants and Mesoamerican culture goes back to his childhood when he spent time near Chapultepec and also visiting the National Museum of Anthropology. As a teenager, he did an apprenticeship at a cotton weaving workshop in Oaxaca. Welcome, Alejandro.
2: Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to participate in this podcast. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So happy to have you. Can you please just first tell me about yourself and your career as a botanist and anthropologist and director of the Ethnobotanical Garden and Museum in Oaxaca?
2: I grew up in an intercultural setting since day one because my father was Mexican of mixed descent. Our great-grandfather spoke Zapotec, as his mother language. And on his father's side, this was his mother's side, on his father's side, we came from San Luis Potosí, which is on the opposite side of Mexico. So on my father's side, I already had like the two cultural extremes, indigenous Mexico and non-indigenous Mexico in the family. And then on my mother's side, we are of Finnish descent. So I'm really a cultural hybrid, Jessica. I think this has allowed me to develop a sensitivity in the field of material culture that perhaps somebody with a different background might not have. I learned botany on my own, but I don't have a degree in botany. My training has been interdisciplinary, So I took courses not only in biology, I was particularly interested in evolutionary theory, but I also took courses in linguistics and explored philosophy and explored art history. And it was wonderful. And I pursued that at Berkeley. And this has allowed me to be active in environmental conservation and in cultural preservation. The garden was my proposal, thanks to the uh, protection and the encouragement and the blessing of the foremost artist of the second half of the 20th century and the first 20 years of this century. And I'm talking of our beloved Francisco Toledo. He felt that I was somebody who could contribute to what he was building together in Oaxaca. He was originally From a Zapotec family, he identified himself with Zapotec people, and he became a key figure in not only Oaxaca, but throughout Mexico after returning from Paris. And it's thanks to that relationship that we could propose the Ethnobotanical Garden. And later on, we proposed together the Textile Museum. The Textile Museum, we were fortunately that the Harp Foundation backed it and is now the institution that manages the Textile Museum. Whereas the ethnobotanical column, because we proposed it in federal property, it had to be a government project and it's now a state government project. My background has provided the possibility of communicating with colleagues and with students, with young people. I feel very fortunate I am very lucky that both at the garden and at the Texas Museum, I have been not the single person, but I have been part of who has enabled a group of young people to come together and share passion and share conviction and share a spirit of working together against all odds, against lack of funding, against people who politically don't like us against all kinds of logistic problems, but we have prevailed, at least so far. We have prevailed at the garden, we have prevailed at the textile museum. Thanks to the will of young people who have seen the example of Francisco Toledo and myself, and they have identified with that example. They have said, yes, this is something worth following.
1: Thank you so much. I feel lucky to have been able to visit both institutions. I took the tour at the garden and also really enjoyed the exhibit on view at the textile museum. It was on indigo. And so I would just love to hear... Um, specifically first about the garden and the biodiversity within the garden and the importance of its variation, and also just how ethnobotanical gardens can serve as a form of cultural preservation and conservation and what your thoughts might be on that.
2: There is a database that is called the Ethnolog. You can check on it. It's available online. And not all the linguists are in agreement because different linguists have different criteria for classifying languages. How many languages are recognized by the ethnologue in each of those countries and all other countries of the world? And within those countries, how many languages are spoken in different regions? If you do that, you realize Mexico is number one country in the Americas for languages still spoken today. The ethnologue recognizes close to 300 languages alive today in Mexico. By the way, the federal government in Mexico has an even higher number of languages. But we want to compare with other areas of the world, so we use the ethnologue. According to the ethnologue, they're close to 300. Of those close to 300, Oaxaca is the only area, the only state, of the Republic of Mexico, that has over 50% of those languages acknowledged by the Ethnologue. Over 50% are in Oaxaca, still spoken today. No area of Mexico and no country of Central America has close to 150 languages. We don't want to wave the Oaxaca flag here and say we're special. It's about understanding what has brought about this great natural diversity, this great cultural diversity, and what are the links between biodiversity and cultural richness that Oaxaca is so rich in plants and animals and fungi. Oaxaca is the area where we see the confluence of two biogeographical realms. Actually, I should backtrack a little and say that First of all, Oaxaca is very complex geologically. We have a very rugged landscape. We have mountains all over, as you experience coming here. And that, of course, creates diversity. In terms of the life history of plants and animals, the land bridge connecting southern Mexico with Colombia, is relatively recent. It's only in the last three to 10, 11 million years, geologists are still not sure when the land bridge was completed, but it's very relatively recent. For over 200 million years, Southern Mexico was isolated from other tropical areas. And that's what's really crucial because we see today lineages of plants and animals that are tropical and they have their evolutionary history here and some of them provide textile fibers and textile dye stuffs and once the land bridge connects the two it's southern mexico and especially oaxaca where the floras and faunas of the north and the south meet and mingle And that's what makes Oaxaca so diverse in terms of plants and animal life. So Oaxaca has played a crucial role in the natural history. And it accounts for such a diverse list of plants and animals that represent ingredients for your dye bath or for spinning fibers for creating textiles. Now, what do we make of the fact that we also have the greatest cultural diversity in the Americas? Well, we think it's not a coincidence, and that's what we aim to show at this garden. We want to develop the story for visitors that it is not a coincidence that in the area of greatest natural diversity, you also have the greatest cultural diversity. There must be links between the two. And we try to show those links with live examples. What we would like to point out is that what is the area with the earliest evidence of agriculture in the Americas. The archaeologists have found seeds that go back 10,000 years and they were already domesticated. These are squash seeds long before maize. These are 10,000-year-old squash seeds that so far are the earliest cultivated seeds found anywhere in the Americas. We have contemporary sites that are older. We have the earliest archaeological evidence for maize. Maize appears to have been domesticated in southern Mexico, and we have also genetics to back this claim. We have the greatest diversity of maize genes under cultivation here in Oaxaca. We are the cradle of agriculture in the Americas, and we think. That goes hand in hand with cultural diversity, because once you start cultivating plants, you have to devote yourself to a patch of land where you're growing your food. You're no longer roaming the landscape freely to gather plants in the wild or to hunt game, but you are devoting your energy, your time to the patch of land that you're cultivating. And that changes cultural dynamics. The majority, not all, but the majority of the languages spoken today in Oaxaca, and certainly the linguistic family that makes Oaxaca so rich linguistically and culturally, and that goes hand in hand with making the case that we are such a complex area with such specific niches because of climate, because of soil, because of the rugged landscape, you developed specific kinds of agriculture for specific landscapes, for specific pockets of the soil and of the competing plants, no? So they became very specialized ecologically to grow food successfully. And they started communicating less and less with their neighbors and tending to develop their own languages and their own textiles among other expressions of material culture. That's the story I would like to propose.
1: I'm thinking specifically of just one plant in particular that I know has gotten quite a bit of acclaim here in Oaxaca, and that is the nopal. And that is because of the cochinilla that lives on the nopal. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this plant particularly is of great importance here Is this a plant that you can find in the Ethnobotanical Garden? And can you just talk a little bit about its history specifically in the region?
2: Not only can you find it growing in the Ethnobotanical Garden, but it's the highlight of the garden. We have an opal grove at the heart of the garden, where you have the best view of the Grand Monastery of Santo Domingo, The Dominicans were the religious order that uh, converted indigenous people to Christianity in this part of the Americas. And the Dominicans built a beautiful monastery filled with art and filled with gold and filled with learning. This was the place where they were training the young novices to become effective preachers to convey to the indigenous people of Oaxaca Christianity. So they were training people, but they were wealthy, and the source of their wealth was the nopal cactus. The nopal is not native as a genus to this part of the world. Nopales are the local name not from the original languages of Oaxaca, but from Nahuatl. Nahuatl is the language of the ancient people of Tenochtitlan, of Mexico City. The name Oaxaca is from their language, from Nahuatl. So Nopales is the local name for what botanists call opuntia. Opuntia are the prickly pear cacti. The prickly pear cacti as a genus, have their evolutionary origin not here, not in Mexico, but in the Andes, the dry parts of the Andes. From the Andes, they spread north to Central America, to the Caribbean, and into Mexico. And in Mexico, they found numerous opportunities to diversify. This is a recurrent pattern that you see in many lineages of plants and of animals. Mexico provides an evolutionary opportunity to diversify. You see that in the natural history of Mexico. And you see that in the cacti. You see that in the cacti as a family. You see that in the opuntias as a genus. So the opuntias diversify here and the opuntias are the host plants for relatives of aphids. You know aphids? Aphids are a nightmare for gardeners and carnations and all kinds of garden plants, and it's hard to get rid of them. The cochineal insect is a distant relative of aphids, but it's a scale insect. Unlike aphids who move about, scale insects are stationary. They settle down and they live in that part of the plant the rest of their life, and they become protected. In the case of the cochineal bug, it protects itself with a layer of wax. That's its defense. And the wild cochineal insects is covered with a fluffy stuff that is wax. And there are wild cochineal species all the way from Arizona and New Mexico to Patagonia there are at least 11 species of wild cochineal. There are at least 11 that have been described with scientific names. That means with a Latin uh, binomial, a genus name, Dactylopius, and a specific name. Wild cochineal then is a problem for Opuntias because they are very effective parasites and they can kill your plant. And they have natural enemies. In this part of the world, people domesticated both the cactus and the parasite. They domesticated the cactus as food. As you may know, in Mexico, we love the fruit, which we call tuna. And we love the Pads of the cactus, the flat pads of the prickly pear cactus, are a vegetable. We call them nopalitos. People domesticated a number of species of nopales, not just one, but a number of species to varying degrees. There are some that are totally domesticated and they're not known in the wild, and others that are partly domesticated, and others that are used from the wild. But along with the cactus, people domesticated the insect. And the domesticated insect is what we call true cochineal or fine cochineal, grana, we call it in Spanish. Now, grana is something that I want to point out because when the Europeans invade Mexico, they realize that people are using a wonderful red color, which reminds them of grana from the Mediterranean. But grana from the Mediterranean is a tiny insect distantly related to cochineal, but it's a parasite on wild oaks of the dry Mediterranean vegetation. You only find that in Spain, in southern Italy, around the Mediterranean, in the warmer areas around the Mediterranean, you find the host plant, which is a wild oak, and the insect parasite, which is tiny. But it was very valuable. Grana was known to be the source of the best red dye known in ancient Europe and in ancient Western Asia. They valued it highly. And the name grana comes from Latin, from granum. The Europeans invade Mexico and they realized the originary people of Mexico have a much better red they have a much better red because it's much more yielding. Unlike the tiny red insect that you had to collect from the oaks, in Mexico, people had domesticated the insect along with the host plant and they produced huge quantities compared to what the Europeans were gathering from the oaks. The Mexican people were producing huge quantities of this beautiful, rich red And the Europeans coveted it. Oaxaca became the center of production, and this became the most valuable agricultural product in world trade, not just of the Spanish Empire, but worldwide. If you look at price records, if you look at the shipments of what was going across the Pacific and what was going across the Atlantic, there was nothing that was the result of planting anything and harvesting anything that had been the result of human labor. We're not talking about silver and gold of the mines. We're talking about agricultural products. Nothing competed with cochineal in terms of how productive it was. It created immense revenue for the Spanish crown and it remained number one die stuff in world trade for over 300 years. And throughout that period, Oaxaca was the center of production. It made Oaxaca wealthy. It made Oaxaca the third largest city in New Spain. It made Oaxaca an area of learning, an area of sophistication, of cultural activity, of cultural liveliness. It made Oaxaca a center of art. It made Oaxaca... A center of beauty. You see that today when you visit Oaxaca. It harkens back to that period. Economists and sociologists have long been bewildered by the fact that a good part of the story is Cochineal because the crown realizes that Oaxaca is special. Oaxaca is producing the most important product for the crown, for the empire. After gold and silver from the mines, this is what's making money. So they give entitlement to the land, to the communities, because they realize, they realize very soon that you cannot produce cochineal the same way that they were producing sugar on the plantations or the same way that they were growing tobacco or the same way that they were growing indigo and other Thai stuff, also native. They realize that you cannot produce cochineal with slave labor like they were producing sugar or tobacco. Why? Because if you were producing cochineal with slaves, all your profits went into keeping your labor force alive. You had to buy food for your slaves. And you had to buy clothing for your slaves. You had to keep them alive. And that meant all the profits went to keeping your labor force alive because cochineal is very labor intensive. You have to take care of the plants because they have been domesticated. In, in under domestication, they have lost their natural defenses. They no longer have thorns. They're susceptible to hail storms. They're susceptible to fungus disease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have to keep. You, you have to know what they're, you're doing, and you have to spend a lot of time keeping the plants. In good condition. And more importantly, you have to protect the insects. The insects have a lot of natural enemies because they're native here. They have other insects that feed upon them. So it's an endless task, cleaning the cochineal, weeding out by hand. This was the specialized work of children, of women in their spare time, and of the elderly people. The men... It cultivated the nopal groves, but it was the fine handiwork of women and children and elderly people to be weeding out the enemies of the cochineal. So the empire realizes the profitable way to produce cochineal is to give land rights to the communities, let them grow their food, let them own the land so that they have firewood and charcoal and water to irrigate their fields, let them be self-sufficient in food and extract from them the result of their labor in the form of taxes and tithes paid in kind. And they demanded cochineal. And that's what they did. The communities were paying, other communities were paying in money or in other goods. People in Oaxaca were paying their obligations to the empire in Cochineal. And today, hundreds of years later, we still have that imprint in the social landscape because the communities own their lands. And that makes for a very different dynamics. That's why Oaxaca is so special. People here are sovereign over their lives, because they own their property, they own their fields, they own their forests, they own their waters. This creates a very different cultural dynamics from what you experience elsewhere in Latin America, elsewhere in the world, where there are originary people remaining. And we believe, to bring it back to our project of the garden and of the cultural scene in Oaxaca, we believe this is part of what makes Oaxaca so special. I didn't
1: realize how much it impacted the social and political structures of Oaxaca today in terms of land ownership and social customs. Thank you so much for sharing that. Following up on the comment of Spanish invasion, I also am aware of the fact that the textiles that are created here, many of them are now on pedal looms with a, a balancing treadle system. I was wondering if you could just briefly talk about the impact of the textile industry. You have the cochineal being cultivated here. It's being used to dye as well. How is that connection with the weaving that's also happening in the region a part of this larger historical moment of Spanish invasion?
2: I learned to weave first on the treadloom. And then I taught myself to weave on the backstrap loom later. And I prefer the backstrap loom because it gives you more flexibility. The tread loom was introduced, as you mentioned, in the 1500s. The Europeans introduced the spinning wheel. They introduced their fibers, wool, silk, although there was a native silk also, I should mention. They introduced the tread loom as a more efficient, time-wise way to produce yardage. And people here accepted the Tretloom. But what is so interesting to me is the fact that the two weaving traditions have coexisted for 500 years. They have mutually influenced each other, but both have their place. They have not surpassed each other's space, culturally artistically and symbolically. What do I mean by this? Symbolically, the trail loom is about gender. It's men who weave on the trail loom. Recently, women have started weaving on the trail loom as well. You see that in Teotitlán. You see that in Santana del Valle. You see it less in other communities. But in other communities, the trail loom is men's work. And the backstrap loom is women's work, by and large. There are some exceptions, but by and large, the backstrap loom is women's work, as the spinning on the spindle, the manual spindle, and setting up the loom. The backstrap loom is used for textiles that give the message. I am Zapotec, and furthermore, I'm from the community of San Bartolo, Yautepec admire the beauty of what went to my creation it is specific to my community and there has been some crossover the wool was the brought by the europeans was adapted to the backstrap loom it was adapted also to the indigenous spindle cotton was also adapted to the tread loom but by and large the products of the loom tell you what the cultural context is aimed for. The loom is for generic textiles that are specific to Oaxaca, but not telling any further cultural information. In many communities... That was traditionally now sadly being lost, but in many communities there were specific textiles to mark the role that you are the sponsor of the fiesta of the community. Or that you are an elder, that you are a revered elder who sits on the council and takes community decisions and advises the governing body of the community. That doesn't happen with the Treloom textiles
1: agriculture plants and textiles, and specifically how larger agricultural industries are changing biodiversity. Fast fashion is shifting traditional textile processes. Traditional I use with quotation marks because what is traditional when we live in a society where things have influenced each other very much over time? and I don't want to isolate someone just by using that term, but how textile processes who have been passed down from generation to generation and hold specific importance, that is also shifting because of industry, tech fashion industry, textile industry. And so I'm curious how these two things that are quite closely related to Oaxaca, plant life, textile processes, how things have been impacted by these industries Specifically, as I think of, you know, Spanish invasion happened 500 years ago or longer, but there's new forms of colonization or new forms of exploitation. I know a little bit about the history myself from listening to others in Teotitlan speak about Western industries coming in and shifting patterns or colors. And so I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the impact of other industries on the textile and Plant communities of Oaxaca?
2: First, the contact of weavers and food producers in Oaxaca with world trade goes back to the 1500s. It started in the 1500s. Because Oaxaca was producing such a valuable commodity for world trade, Oaxaca was also on the receiving end for wonderful industrial textiles. And we have records of that. I mean, industrial in the sense of being produced in specialized workshop, not necessarily machines in the 1500s. But certainly we have records of textiles produced in China and India and Europe coming here and being used indigenous communities. Why? Because the indigenous communities could afford it because they were very wealthy. There are even complaints of poor Spaniards who are writing letters to the authorities and saying, the indigenous families here are much better off than we are. We have to work for them. And this is so unfair. They're complaining. Imagine that. I mean, it's the world upside down. But that was happening in Oaxaca. The indigenous people, in many cases, not all, because of the cochineal bonanza, were in better financial terms, and they were able to afford wearing, for example, Chinese fabrics for their skirts or European woolen goods for their coats, for what men were wearing, for their jackets and hats and silk from China that they were using as embroidery thread and jewelry that was coming also from overseas. This is very well attested in the trade records and in the geographical descriptions. We call them the relaciones geográficas, the best known are of the late 1500s. And then we have further relaciones geográficas, some very detailed from the late 1700s. And they're fantastic sources of information, all kinds of interesting, fascinating tidbits of this interaction. The people here were not naive to the designs fashionable in Europe or in Asia, because they were buying chintzes, you know? The printed, uh, the calico fabrics of India and the silk uh, brocades from uh, China. And uh, all kinds of European textiles that were coming here and people were using them. And there was interaction for 500 years. There has been interaction for 500 years in terms of technology, in terms of design. Now, a lot has been lost in the last century, especially after the Mexican Revolution of 1910. when after a... The warring factions, in which my grandfather, by the way, participated, finally came to a period of national policy that was progressive, by and large progressive, with very interesting educational programs. Starting in the 1920s, there was a sense of national identity like there hadn't been before, where indigenous culture was highly valued, especially the pre-Columbian past. And indigenous aesthetics was highly valued. There had been previous periods, even during the Porfirio Diaz regime, who was from Oaxaca, by the way, there was some glorification of the indigenous past and of textile designs. For example, you see that in the monument to Emperor Cuauhtemoc, which dates back to those years prior to the Mexican Revolution. You see how the textile design, the stepped fret, is valued, it decorates that monument which sits at one of the most important intersections in our capital city, Mexico City. But it's especially in the 1920s that we re-examine the past and Mexico launches very impactful educational programs and crafts become part of that. There is growing appreciation and this had an impact on how Mexican society views the work of craftspeople. This changes our social sense of ourselves. But at the same time, Mexico is investing heavily into industrializing itself, especially in the 1940s during the time of the Second World War, when there is confluence of economic factors favoring investment in Mexico and in devoting of labor to growing number of cities where industry becomes paramount, manufacturing industry and the steel industry and also based on the fact that Mexico is very rich mining. Mineral story of Mexico, no? Anyway, this has a social impact over the last 80 years, both the school system, the active ambiguity that we have. It's an active ambiguity where on the one hand, we glorify the pre columnian times, but on the other hand, we look down upon indigenous people because of their economic status. And there's this tension, this underlying unresolved tension, contradiction between on the one hand acknowledging our indigenous past, but on the other hand actively discriminating cultural traditions and indigenous communities. And the indigenous people, in many cases, opt to suppress the outward signs of indigenous affiliation, of community loyalty, because they're looked down upon. And indigenous textiles, in many cases, survive for the market, but the people are no longer wearing it. You see that in Oaxaca. You see that elsewhere in Mexico. You see that elsewhere in Latin America.
1: I just wanted to ask if you could just briefly touch upon the mission of the Textile Museum and your role there and how it's serving as a place for educating others about these sorts of topics and this conversation and some of the complexities of this history and the intricacies of it that one might not necessarily know just by visiting Oaxaca City. How does that museum play into bettering people's understanding of this rich textile history?
2: The textile museum was originally an idea of Francisco Toledo and Francisco Toledo's partner, Trine Elitzgardt, who is a Danish textile artist, and myself. The three of us had this dream of a place where textiles could be admired and where art of the loom and the art of the spindle and the art of the embroidered needle could be pursued in a city of museums, a city increasingly with a cultural Devotion, with uh, increasingly with a cultural vocation, no? Oaxaca became a city of cultural effervescence, of cultural activity of artists and of poets and of dancers and of musicians. And that had a lot to do with Francisco because Francisco was a world-class artist and he had not only the talent and the recognition, but the social commitment. But it was also... Thinking of the weavers of Oaxaca and the embroiderers of Oaxaca, the textile artists, the dyers, the blanket artists of Teotitlán, where Francisco had spent time in the 1960s. He had lived in Teotitlán in the 1960s. That was part of what led the three of us to propose the textile museum, the Hart Foundation Meret family, thanks to the personal commitment of Marisabel and Alfredo. And so they saw it as a possibility for not just a museum, not just displaying outstanding pieces of textile art, but especially as a place for workshops, as a place for kids to learn about textile, for urban artists interested in weaving and embroidery and other forms of textile art to experiment in, and as a way especially to provide a dignified venue for the communities of the Oaxaca hinterland, the isolated communities where the tourists don't visit. They bring their textiles and they have to sell them in very inequitable terms to the gallery owners. The effort to create a museum was in large measure in response to that. Let's create something where the weavers can also sell, but sell without having to sacrifice major part of the revenue that goes to the middle persons. At the museum, there's only a small overhead to allow the shop to continue to work, but they, they love it because they get much better prices at the museum shop that they get elsewhere. I've been the instigator for the purchase and putting together of what is now the holdings of the textile museum, which run close to 10,000 pieces And it's not just Oaxaca and it's not just Mexico, but it's all over the world. The cochineal went all over the world. And cochineal is used, for example, in Turkish kilims. There are beautiful 19th century and early 20th century Turkish kilims where the beautiful reds and purples are cochineal from Oaxaca. And cochineal went to silk in china and it shaped european art and and not just textiles but oil painting and portraits and even furniture no and it went all over asia and it went to africa african textiles also bear the imprint of oaxacan cochineal and we want to show that we would like to start we would like to promote the dialogue no of parallels that we see, and not just in the dyestuffs and the fibers, but also in techniques and also in designs and in symbolism in what designs mean.
0: There are
2: young people who write to us from the communities and say, how come our town is not included in the map? You published all the textile traditions of Oaxaca. We have our own tradition. This is wonderful for us. This is exactly the kind of feedback we were looking for. A biblioteca is a book library, and iloteca is a thread library. We provide threads, and not just Oaxacan threads, but threads from elsewhere in Mexico and threads from elsewhere in the world. People come to buy threads and to buy yardage of good quality and to buy indigo and to buy cochineal and to learn how to use it. Because in many cases, they have lost that knowledge, although they know historically it was part of their cultural legacy.
1: Thank you, Alejandro, for joining us for the second season of the Fields of the Future podcast. It has been such a joy and privilege being able to speak with you today and learn so much about your own personal work and the histories and the cultures of the region. So thank you.
2: Most welcome.
0: Fields of the Future is brought to you by Bard Graduate Center, located in New York City, the traditional homelands of the Lenape, Merrick, Canarsie, Matinacock, and Rockaway nations. Despite systemic erasures, these lands persist as intertribal trade lands under the stewardship of many nations and over 115,000 intertribal Native American, First Nations and Indigenous peoples who currently call New York City home. We acknowledge that many cities and institutions in the Americas were founded on the exclusions and erasures of indigenous peoples. In addition, we would like to acknowledge those whose ancestors did not arrive on this lands of their own free will and whose tremendous cultural, economic, and technological contributions continue to provide the foundation for our lives. Our producers are Juliana Fagua-Arias and Jessica Merdane young Our direction by Jocelyn Lau, composition and sound editing by Palmer Heffron. With thanks to Laura Minsky, Emily Riley, Amy Estes, Peter Miller, Nadia Rivers, Helen Tang, Maggie Walters, and Susan Weber. Special thanks to Hadley Jensen, whose online exhibition, Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest, was the inspiration for this season.